the views and comments expressed on the Space Show by its guests, callers, and listeners belong to them. The Space Show and its hosts serve only as a platform and are not responsible for others' comments or views. All topics discussed on the Space Show are primarily for educational purposes. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the live space show for Friday. It's great to be back from my little jaunt over to uh, Los Angeles. And uh, I'm glad all of you are here. We have a terrific program with one of our favorite guests. John Bucknell is with us with uh, one of his associates with Virtuous Solus. I'll talk about that in just a minute. And uh, we're doing a full-length space show program today. So if you have a question for either of our guests uh, or a comment, please do pay attention to the time. We definitely want to hear from you. but make sure you do it within the time limits where we're broadcasting because often I get emails and phone calls after the show has gone off the air. So that doesn't work very well, does it, everyone? Um, our toll-free number, one eight six 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 eight seven seven two two three, And uh, we do prefer phone calls over email, but obviously we, we are happy to take your email too. But once again, uh, we prefer your calls, one eight six six. Six eight seven seven two two three. Email remains as always. Doctor Space D R S P A C E at the dot com. How about that? There's a a call before we even start. And uh, caller, hopefully you're uh, you're listening on the on the line. And I'm putting you on hold for a few minutes so we can at least complete the introduction and get John and uh, Doctor Tate talking. So just sit tight, and I'll be happy to bring you up on air in just a minute. Uh, don't forget, if you want our Space Show email newsletter, make sure I have your email address. It goes out 6 a.m. Pacific time every Monday morning. We archive everything, and you can hear things right off of our website. Uh, you can uh, download uh, MP3s, and you can also pick us up on almost every podcast server because we're podcasting as well. After the live program ends, I record these shows and turn them into podcasts. Um, we do have our store. If you're interested in uh, uh, Space Show logo wear, and you click on Pepper the Siberian Husky, listening to the Space Show, and she takes you to our Cafe Press Space Show store. And uh, your feedback on that store is always welcome. Product suggestion is also always welcome. Uh, don't forget we're a nonprofit 501c3 listener-supported program, meaning those of you who listen and participate with us uh, because you send in generous contributions, we're able to do these programs and bring you great guests like you're going to hear today. There is a PayPal button in the upper right corner. That is the easiest way to support us. If you want to use a check, it has to be made out to one giant leap foundation 
do not make it out to the space show because Chase Bank is is not accepting space show checks, only one giant leap check, claiming there are new federal audit rules now. I don't know the federal audit rules for banks and nonprofit accounts, but uh, Chase is our bank account, so I'm playing the game the way Chase wants us to. So your checks need to be made payable to one giant leap foundation, and they mail to our Las Vegas office. That address is on that PayPal button. And if you want to use Zelle, Zelle has a special email account that goes directly to the Chase account, David at one O-N-E giant leap foundation dot org. Please don't use the spatial account. That is not a registered account with Chase Bank. And we uh, appreciate your support. Don't forget we have sponsorships with the uh, banner ads and the PR messages. Sponsorships run on a calendar basis. They're $500 per year. And uh, we'd love to have you as a sponsor or as an advertiser, which is what Dr. Benaroya does with his two great lunar development books. Other sponsors are Northrop Grumman, AIAA, Helix Space in Luxembourg, the National Space Society, Celestis, Astrox Corporation, the Space Foundation, and uh, our our great uh, participant, uh, John Jossie, with his Space Settlement Progress blog. Uh, listeners, we have two great guests today. As I said, we're talking space solar power. Uh, John Bucknell is back with us, and uh, those of you who listen to space shows know about John. He's been a guest many, many times over the recent years. He started his space solar power company a couple of years ago, and we've been getting uh, constant reports from him. Uh, he moved out of California, is in a more business-friendly state. He can mention that if he wants to. Uh, his full bio is up on the website, so uh, check him out. Uh, we used to have him on talking about nuclear power, but he switched over to space solar power, and his company is actually moving down the road with demos and uh, getting ready to make that happen. Uh, our additional guest is Dr. Edward Tate, and he is the CTO and co-founder of Virtuous Solus Technology, which is uh, the commercializing space-based solar power. And um, you can read his full bio, and I'll let him talk a little bit more about his very interesting background. Uh, uh, I'd want to talk to John and, and Ed more than I want to read about both of them. So, John, we'll start out with you and welcome you back to the space show again. Thank you, David. Appreciate the opportunity. Um, your guests always have great questions for us, and uh, we know this is a hot-run topic. Um, I don't know how many times you've said the word space-based solar power on your show over the years, but it's got to be thousands, um, <clears throat> and we appreciate that because um, we think that uh, we're finally ready, um, not just us, but several other businesses uh, globally. Um, we're not alone. We're, we're one of two commercial entities that are operating publicly, and uh, notably, uh, we'll tell your listeners uh, there's two big things we want to share. Uh, there was a conference uh, in Orlando a few weeks ago uh, called SpaceCom. Uh, it's been ongoing for a long time. This was the 50th uh, version of that uh, that conference, and uh, I was on a uh, on a panel discussion around uh, in space assembly and manufacturing. And at the end of that panel, uh, we were able to announce that our uh, ourselves and our partners. Uh, which uh, is, their name is Orbital Composites. They're based in San Jose. 
Uh, we're going to fly the first space-based solar power pilot plant, which means it's a, a subscale version of a full plant, uh, in 2027. And the other big thing uh, is that we released a white paper around the economics of recent uh, designs of space-based solar power systems, uh, comparing um, you know detailed analyses that have been done in uh, the European Union uh, by the ESA and as well as in the UK, and comparing that to our system as well as the uh, the 1980 NASA reference. So those are you know two big things that we're you know sharing, uh, and, and would like to have more public discussion. Though the the white paper itself is uh, published on our blog as well as on uh, ResearchGate. You can find both of those things, and if you follow us on LinkedIn at all you know that uh, we publish uh, frequently and often on a number of topics around energy, economics, and uh, the solution that space-based solar power as a, you know, the technology is really very favorable uh, compared to all the solutions we might have to solve our global energy challenges. So we can have those as topics, and certainly I'd like to have uh, Ed introduce himself since he hasn't been on the show before and tell uh, your listeners a little bit about uh, you know, how he came to be working with me and um, his very nonlinear path, just like my nonlinear path to this uh, to this technology. Ed, welcome to the space show. It's nice to meet you. How are you? Hey, I'm doing great. Hey, David, it's great to be on the show with you and John. Um, I'll, I'll give you a little background of myself. Um, I'm the CTO at Virtus Solus, and I, I'm here because I like solving really big problems. I, I started my career out in automotive working on electric vehicles at GM. And I actually fell in love with the factories and the scale of, auto, of operations that automotive has. The, the automotive sector literally turned dirt into mobility for the world. Um, while I was there, I worked on cleaning up the automobile. Um, my first car program was the GM EV1, and I ended up doing a lot of bat, a lot of work on batteries. And it wasn't because I loved batteries, but just simply I was the youngest guy there, and nobody wanted to work on batteries. Um, I, I was fortunate because I got to learn the problems well enough that I helped solve two big problems while I was there. One was how to accurately estimate how much energy was left in the batteries, which back in the 90s, that was actually a, a really big problem. We actually stranded a couple of uh, directors and chief engineers on the road because it wasn't accurate enough and the range wasn't very big. Um, and that led to a series of patents, and basically if you drive an EV today, chances are some of the foundational work that we did back in the 90s is actually helping give an accurate estimate on range and things like that. The second one sort of led me to the next steps in my career, which was looking at how to speed up engineering. I mean, there's two things that really make engineering take time, and that's building prototypes, doing physical testing, and then having a lot of manual processes and doing simulation and analysis. And we needed to get answers faster because electrification, EVs, hybrids, all these things were driving the need to understand what could really be done on this entirely new design area. And I was, once again, fortunate to get thrown into an area that they need to have something happen quickly and was able to speed up some of the engineering processes from the point that they would take a small team months to get an answer to the point that we can get answers overnight. Um, that, in turn, um, really allowed us to understand deeply what was going on in the problem so that we could figure out what engineering could do to match what marketing wanted to do. Well, as a GM, I got, my fellowship, I got fellowships to get my master's at Stanford, a PhD at University of Michigan. I authored dozens of patents covering stuff like EVs, wireless charging, autonomy, and navigation. And then John and I actually met when we were there. So um, we've known each other for more than like 15 years. And because of the work I was done, I got recruited out by a company called EXA because they were looking to take on the audacious challenge of trying to help automakers reduce the amount of capital they needed to build cars. For those who aren't familiar, it takes like between about a billion and $6 billion to bring a new car to market. Um, 
And a lot of that comes down to building prototypes that may be a million or million dollars or more each using equipment that's hundreds of millions of dollars to purchase and keep running. And the idea was that simulation was accurate enough in the uh, 2000s that you could actually completely design a vehicle without ever having to go to these test facilities. And we were successful. We, we managed to help some of our key customers get to the point they could completely design a car without ever going into building a prototype, verifying it worked, putting it into uh, wind tunnels and other testing environments. And it collapsed the time it took to go from that concept to that first vehicle that you could really say is ready to go into production. Uh, we were acquired by Dassault Systems, and I was leading a team that repeated that recipe we had for automotive across different sectors, automotive, aerospace, heavy industry, et cetera. Um, while I was there, John contacted me, and he said, hey, I'm going to build space-based solar power satellites. Well, I, I, my first reaction was, hey, that kind of sounds like science fiction. Does that even work? And so not to be one to back away from a challenge, I, I spent the next two years learning everything I could about it. I learned about uh, power beaming, learned about antennas, learned about power transmission, and it, it wasn't easy. And I understand why a lot of the, the questions that come up come up because you have to pull together a lot of disciplines to say this is going to be a real solvable problem. And it's really not that much different from automobiles. There's a lot of technologies that come together in cars. To make something like this, there's a lot of technologies that have to come together. Well, the good news is after about two years of looking at it, I understood it. And I said, John, yeah, this is going to work. It, it can and it will work. We got funded, and I joined him full time. And we've been proving step by step now that this can happen and this is going to be the next big thing. So here we are discussing it today, and I appreciate you having me on joining you. Uh, well, it's, it's uh, good to have you. And um, when you were doing your due diligence and learning everything about space solar power, I mean, this is back when launch wasn't as, as low cost. I'm not going to say cheap because it's not cheap. As, as low cost as it is today. And there were lots and lots and lots of voices, and there still are lots of voices, talking about how this can never be economic because of maintenance, because of, uh, you know, the amount of stuff that's going to be in space and this and that and the other. Um, and yet you somehow, I guess, uh, didn't believe a, a lot of the criticism, a lot of the anti-economic voices. What what prompted you to go to the positive side and and not get sucked in to the, uh, the this is just not going to work side with all of their facts on the economy and launches and and everything else was it your friendship with John or uh, what did you see that that got you to to go to the light so to speak? My experience working on batteries. Um, I, I spent first basic fifteen twenty years of my career doing something all the time that was associated with batteries. I actually. I remember one of the engineers I worked with said, hey, Ed, be very, very careful on the first assignment you ever take. You will probably be doing it for the rest of your life. Um, so far, I've managed to escape that curse by going over to space-based solar. But the, the key point was that when I looked at things like um, lead-acid batteries, and at the time we did the EV1, it was actually starting with lead-acid batteries, and it was everything possible to make a car that beat 100 miles on a perfect day in Southern California with 100 miles. And then, you know, as it went into production, the numbers dropped off a bit. I believe it was around 70 or 80 miles was the actual uh, sticker number. And it was really, really tough. It was all the engineering you could to get that car just to that point. But then nickel metal hydride came in, 
and nickel metal hybrid meant you could reliably get more than 100 miles on a, a good day. And then lithium was sitting in the wings while I was working on uh, the nickel metal and the lead acid systems. And I still have this intuitive feel, having been somebody that lived through that initial engineering when it was so tough, when it was so hard, just to eke out another mile. And now I look at cars that are getting 300, 400 miles of range with battery packs in them, and there's a piece of me that still says, hey, this, this doesn't really seem like it's going to be economic. It doesn't seem like it's really real economics. And, and that was, when you look at that, I look at my experience as somebody who's kind of an expert in this area, and my gut reaction is just it simply can't be right. But then I look at the numbers, I see the energy density is going up, I see the cost of battery production going down, and you really start to look at it numerically uh, with hard economics, hard data. And you see the trends. And it's apparent, and it was really apparent early on. And if you looked at those charts even back in the 1990s, you could see the trend in battery energy density going up. You can find the old battery reports that say, yes, the battery cost is going to come down to the point it makes sense. So... When you look at something that's happening right now with space, we've got a lot of trends that are coming together that are just at that point where the data is becoming uh, uncontestable. SpaceX is doing an incredible job, and people can see the launch mass that they're putting up increasing. But there's other stuff that's hidden out there. The, the pace that SpaceX is increasing um, their booster launches, like the, the, the amount year by year you're seeing them go from like, you know, about a week of launch to two or one, two launches a week to three launches a week. It, it's just a continual improvement like you see in any other manufacturing enterprise. And you look at all the other companies that are sitting in the wings right now with alternative launch technologies, with alternative approaches. And, and it's very, very similar to me to seeing what batteries were at in the late nineties. The technology is there. There's an ecosystem that's evolving. And there's enough demand that it's going to be able to sustain itself. And that says to me that things that we're looking at with space-based solar are no longer orders of magnitude away from what industry can do. The, the things that we need in terms of logistics, in terms of launch, in terms of manufacturing, these are all now um, part of the industry. The, the, the scale we need fits within what can be done today. And so what I could see a couple years back now is glaringly obvious. And so I'm confident it can be made to happen, and the economics are going to work in our favor. Uh, so this brings me to the the NASA uh, recent report that is getting a lot of criticism to, through the industry, but when I hear reports on mainstream news and in the not-so-dedicated space community, it's all poo-pooing space solar power. So somehow they have economics that don't agree with your confidence. So either one of you or both of you want to comment on that? Sure. I mean, David, you're you're describing uh, almost the reason why we wrote the white paper I described earlier. So uh, if you uh, your readers are interested or your listeners are interested, <coughs> ResearchGate is a, um, you know, a website that carries a lot of uh, publications, ours is on there. And what you have to understand about the NASA report is it's coming – from an organization that developed a really uh, detailed uh, methodology on how to evaluate this technology, but then considered designs that were between 20 and uh, 40 years old. Uh, not, I think the older version is not quite that old, but it's similar. And the methodology is great. They figured out, like, all these sensitivities. And they gave um, – I would urge all of you, if you haven't read the NASA report, to go look at figure three. Uh, the chart, 
it shows you the impact on uh, carbon emissions and the impact on uh, cost of energy of all the different uh, ways you could build paid solar power. And they compare it to terrestrial production. And actually, uh, we actually had one of our interns go and pull the data out and plot it a little bit differently because it's uh, the way it's plotted, you can't uh, learn anything useful out of it. But at the end of the day, uh, you actually have to understand their assessments. And I would say if you read the executive summary, it actually said, hey, you know what, there are ways to make this work. And among all the different variables they considered, they chose a baseline that is the reason for the criticism, right? You have all these variables, and they chose basically the worst of the worst. But if you look at the best of the best, the technology is actually quite competitive uh, uh, among energy technologies, even considering these older designs that are as, uh, you know, capital and uh, cost-efficient as the solutions that are, you know, coming uh, coming out today. So we said, okay, look, um, the underlying uh, assumptions around building uh, power plants is actually very variable across all these studies. Uh, you can go and uh, project finance uh, a new a new power plant. Uh, most utilities will you know, issue bonds, or if you're you know not a utility, you don't have assets like that. You go out and raise capital. You go to a bank effectively and say, "Hey, I need a couple of billion to build a power plant. You know, what interest rate are you going to charge me?" And because it's an asset that the, the bank can repossess if necessary, that you can usually get pretty good interest rates. And so, several of these studies had interest rates um, a couple percentage points above um, the, the, the reference rate, you know, whatever the federal uh, sits it at. Some of them were very low, like the Department of Energy guarantees. Some of them were very high, like your, uh, like a 20% interest rate. If you didn't pay your credit card bill, you're going to pay 22%, as I think in the U.S. the maximum by law. But if you, you know, vary those variables, you can get huge range in, in performance uh, financially for these systems. So we 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 flattened it and said, hey, let's just make it all uh, 14%. Let's all just make the profit the same, and then last, let's just make them all use the same launch vehicle. Let's not uh, speculate around uh, future magic launch, magical launchers or in-space transportation systems. And that's the result of uh, the paper we published, is saying, look, among all of these solutions, if you look at compared to other greenfield uh, energy technologies, space solar is actually really good. Um, and, that's yeah. the, and that's the assessment that came out of the NASA paper. If you look at the at the assumptions, and we would argue that even given uh, the whole range of assumptions they made, even the best of the best is still relatively conservative. So it's just a, it's an engineering judgment call um, and uh, an economic judgment call on what is reasonable, what isn't. And one of the big ones, and if you've read it, and I think you've had other guests that um, uh, were much more incensed by it than, than we were, but one of the underlying assessments is that these uh, solar power satellites will only last 10 years. And we look at each other and say, uh, there are satellites in orbit that are over 40 years old and there's the Voyager spacecraft are still operating and they were built with like 60s and 70s era technology. So um, saying something new built today is only going to last 10 years, um, those engineers, you shouldn't, um, you know, contract your, your development work to if they say they can only make something in the last 10 years. Ed and I come yeah. from an automotive background, as we said, and we're used to building things that have to, have to survive by law. Um, and pass emission tests um, after 15 years, 150,000 miles is the minimum. And they should last a long, long time. I have a, a Chevy Volt, which is the last vehicle Ed and I both worked on at GM um, back in 2008 or nine. I think it's when I when I left. But that vehicle, I have 150,000 miles on it, and I've never changed the brakes on it. Uh, it'll probably last a half a million miles, no problem. 
So anyway, I'll, I'll let Ed talk some more. Um, yeah. Well, I, well I'll, I'll throw in a few other comments on that, if you don't mind. I mean, it's like there's one which is, I, I, I think there's a great quote Arthur C. Clarke nailed it on, which is he said, when the distinguished but elderly scientist states that something's possible, he's almost always certainly right. When he states it's impossible, he's probably wrong. You know, I, I think a lot of technology's got the history of showing that, you know, there's early on, there's a lot of people say it can't happen. I mean, EVs are another one you ask, you know, why do I believe this can happen? It's like looking at the transition with EVs. There were a lot of things I, you know, I saw being on the inside I didn't think would work. But even in the aerospace, it's the same thing. I mean, one of the stories I love to go back to is the, the story of uh, Samuel Langley versus the Wright brothers. You know, in 1903, literally, um, a week and a half before the Wright brothers did their first manned flight, Langley was a fully funded government project that he basically crashed his aircraft into the Potomac, walked away and said, that's it. It's going to take years and millions of dollars to make happen. The New York Times even said it would take between like one and two million years for humanity to make a working flying machine. Nine days later, the Wright brothers had something that was in the air. So it's where people have a will and the, physics and the engineering make it possible, things can usually be made to happen. You know, and, and I think space-based solar is positioned to take advantage of that right now. I've had other guests on that have mentioned the NASA report, and one of the things that they uh, point out about the report has to do with launch costs, and I didn't hear John mention that, but the, they seem to indicate that launch costs aren't going to get any cheaper than where they are today which I don't think any listeners to the space show buy into that scenario. Uh, do either of you have any comments about their launch cost assumptions in that report? Um, I would say that uh, <clears throat> I would characterize what they, what they said in the report is that they assumed that the, the things were not going to progress from today, that, that they weren't, uh, that their launch costs in 2050 are going to be the same as today. So, even with that assumption, the, the advent of reusable launch vehicles and, you know, amortizing that capital across a number of missions is as true uh, in the future as it is today and probably going to be better. So assuming things don't get better is uh, a really bad assumption. Um, I don't know if you guys pay attention, but the Falcon series of SpaceX flew at 300 flights this week. 300, uh, that's more than any other uh, single rocket family ever by a large margin. I think they've had 278 consecutive um, flawless flights, which is which is really amazing. So, um, <clears throat> so if you take the, I think the most reused rocket in the Falcon family has flown 19 times. And if you only assume that future rockets can only get to 15 times, uh, those launch costs are very low, uh, even considering the Falcon Heavy and none of these other forthcoming vehicles that are going to get better yet. So, yeah, that's one of the conservative assessments that we saw in the NASA report, which we said, okay, well. If it works today, on today's launch cost, it's going to work way better with tomorrow's. Yeah, and if you look at the if you look at the data, if you start plotting, like I mean, there's a, a law called Fight's Law. It's used by uh, a lot of folks to look at how cost of production will drop with the amount of stuff you produce. If we simply take the space industry since 1957 and plot the launch, the cost of launch up till today, with uh, the Falcon and Starship on there. Um, what's interesting is the 1970s with the shuttle, the prices exploded in the wake of Apollo. But once they come, start coming back down, you can see a continual trend at like a 90% reduction in cost per doubling of launch mass in space. You know, it's a little bit arcane, but it, it definitely, if you plot it correctly, you can see that there is a downward trend that is very aggressive. 
And you can even go to the point to say this looks more aggressive than we've seen in decreasing electronics costs in other industrial areas. You know, I think there's just a lot of potential to be mined that the, the launch startups can take advantage of to drop the cost. Guys, I forgot our caller that uh, called in when the show started. Uh, caller, I hope you're you're still with us. No, he hung up or she hung up. I really apologize. I got so involved in, in what John and Ed were talking about. Caller, I, I do apologize. If you are still with us uh, and listening, please do call back. Uh, the line is available. Now, for my good graces, sometimes telemarketers call this line, and and I, I can only hope that I offended a telemarketer and, and not a space show listener. But the line is available. I do apologize. Please call back, 866-687-7223. And uh, I do have a, a Todd from San Diego email who's beating me to the punch because he says, guys, uh, a noted NASA scientist and engineer that David has had on the show many, many times over the years, Dr. Dennis Bushnell, published on the Howard Bloom email list a series of why SSP will never be uh, competitive. And he went into great detail on how terrestrial solar and wind had changed so much with storage and new batteries and new materials and this, that, and the other that the economics were unbelievable and nothing could touch it, not fusion coming onto the market, not vision, and certainly not space solar power. I'm not sure if you saw the Dennis Bushnell quote that was published on Howard's newsletter, but what have you to say about existing space solar and probably wind technology? Is it really making that big of an improvement? Um, so, <clears throat> believe it or not, we do a lot of... Uh, Analysis around the energy industry in general, um, and to be fair, every single um, solution set around you know generating energy from intermittent sources, and that's wind and solar primarily. There are other forms of clean energy, the geothermals and the hydros, but those are not available uh, very often anywhere. And the challenges of the generation costs, specifically not the transmission, the distribution, all those other fun things, is not the primary problem. The primary problem is distribution and transmission. So those those words are similar. One is local on your local grid. Um, if you live in an area where it's able to vary, it's beautiful. But you know, obviously, some places have um, towers bringing your energy to you from wherever it's being generated. Um, I would say that uh, Dennis uh, is missing the economics, and that's the underlying challenge. Is that everywhere that it's gone to heavy penetration renewables has figured out that the firming cost, the cost of making the available energy, the energy available to the degree you want it, available 24 hours a day, seven days a week, any season, which the seasonality is a big deal, has seen their energy costs go up a lot. Um, those of you who are living in California, um, I understand that uh, the base rate for charging your EV now is $350 a megawatt hour, which is um, 35 cents a kilowatt hour. And a lot of us that worked on EVs uh, back in the day, we were saying, hey, you know what, uh, Those the operating costs of EVs are going to be lower, way lower, because energy costs are going to be maximum about $110 a megawatt hour. So um, at those price points, uh, I would be buying gas for my strong, you know, my plug-in hybrid than I would be charging it. But the reasons they're more expensive is that you've added all this generation capacity, and then the unit economics of the 
the firming, whether it's batteries or long-distance distribution or you know, standby, you know, fossil fuel-powered power plants, has all gone up. So all those markets that have high penetration, and Germany is a great example, are struggling uh, with high energy costs. Uh, Germany is a great example of what not to do. Um, if you've paid attention, they've been on a 20-some-year run of installing renewables, and uh, their energy costs have gone up so high that their GDP has gone down a lot. They call it deindustrialization because businesses can't afford to operate there anymore because energy costs are high. So the challenge is that any of those technologies need to be scalable in order to solve the global energy challenges. And if you have a, a solution set that is more expensive than fossil fuels, most of us in the world that can't afford to you know, the, the high price of energy won't transition, right? And the reasons for the energy transition are, are many, but a lot of them are uh, underpinned with the fact that uh, fossil fuels themselves, all the easy to dig out of the ground stuff has been, unless you want to go back to coal, and coal is more radioactive and more damaging, uh, even ignoring the energy costs than, than any other form of energy. So yeah, given that context, you need something that is firm, and low cost, and we again, space solar as a as a technology is very competitive with all these other technologies. Um, and I would say among the lowest cost possible, even compared to fossil fuels, and that is the key to, to solving energy globally. Yeah, and, and another piece to look at is you can look at what the breakdown is on a monthly retail power bill. Enroll did a great study on this, and the net conclusion is you basically pay about twenty five percent for financing and overhead. 25% for neighborhood distribution, 25% for transmission, 25% for fuel. So if you simply say, I'm going to get no fuel, in theory you get a 25% savings and power gets cheaper. But the problem is that you can see things like uh, Bloomberg, NEF, and others have looked at what it takes to rewire the country to be able to tie the grid together to deal with the intermittency because it, intermittent renewables are made in places away from where people live and places where, away from where industry uses it, so you have to move it. And wires are centuries old. Uh, I think I can say centuries old. Uh, technology that's just not going to get but a little bit better. That being the case, you're looking at a large a fraction of what you pay for is financing for the initial system and transmission lines. Uh, the distribution actually becomes more complex if you start trying to make power in houses and then move the distributed power back around neighborhoods and all. So all of that says that we can generate power for free but distribution and transmission are where you're going to end up paying for it. The, the key thing about space-based solar is space-based solar is actually two solutions in one. It's power generation, but it's also transmission. Um, one of the back-of-the-envelope calculations is that simply we'll use as much minerals to be able to beam power from the East Coast to the West Coast using a, a space-based solar program as it will take to move power about 100 kilometers. So literally trying the amount of stuff it will take to bring an offshore wind power plant into a city, we're going to use that same amount of minerals and we can move something from providing power to Boston to providing power to L.A. from the same generation system. Um, I have another email from you from Bill in uh, Boston. Uh, but first, listeners, the phone line is available. I uh, I will put you on when you call. I, I will not hold you indefinitely and let you hang up. It is Six eight seven seven two two three, and of course you can continue with email, Doctor Space D R S P A C E at thespaceshow dot com. Uh, Bill in Boston says, um, in terms of space solar power, can an individual uh, 
with a business or a resident put up some sort of a dish like they do for satellite TV or Starlink and receive the power themselves and convert it to electricity in their house and will we no longer need a power company? I'm sorry, I have sad news for that uh, person. Um, so, no, uh, unfortunately, um, unlike the sun, we have to build uh, the power plants in space to make the power beam that you know, comes to the ground. So, uh, you can, if you were the sun, you can just spray your energy everywhere. You know, someone can just come along and pick it up. But we need to collect all the power we generate um, in order to, you know, amortize the cost of putting this stuff in space. So that means that these power plants are um, relatively large compared to what your household uses. I don't know if you look at your power bill, but my house with three teenagers runs about three to six kilowatts continuously. And uh, our power plants are about 200 megawatts at the smallest and 1,500 megawatts. Uh, it's, it's a standard size. It's about the size of a nuclear power plant. So that has to do with the physics of the wireless power transfer. Um, and even though we're, uh, you know, we're more intense, and, um, I'm sorry, we're able to recover more energy than sunlight, even though we're less intense. So we're about half the intensity of sunlight at, at most. But the good news is we capture about 90 to 95% of energy and turn it electricity. Whereas your solar panels, if you're lucky, um, capture about uh, 40% of the area of a, of a solar farm is solar panels, and then those solar panels only capture between 18 and 20% at most of the energy that is, uh, you know, that lands on them. So in order to make this work, you have to have a roughly large area to collect it. So um, you're going to have to still deal with your local utility or whoever it is, um, ultimately, to get uh, energy from space. Um, we have a caller who wants to talk to you, and this is another reason to be out of California, and I no longer have to deal with Pacific Gas and Electric. But, uh, <laughs> hi, caller. Welcome to the show, and who are you, where are you, and we appreciate your call. Hey, David. This is John in Fremont, California. Ah, uh, you do get to deal with PG&E. My congratulations to you, John. Yeah, my power went out yesterday. Of so course. yay! Of course, of course, and the bill went up. What? A, how perfect is it? <laughs> Go for it, John. Um, hey, 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 John. Um, good to talk to you again. And uh, uh, thanks, thanks for the white paper. But by, by the way, I I linked it on on David's blog for this show, so it'll be easy Great. for listeners to go uh, pick Great. it up. So it's there. Um, so uh, in, in describing your system, um, this is the first time I've seen this. Uh, you, you talk about um, having two hours of ground energy storage for each ground station. This is the first time I've heard of um, ground uh, – is, is it battery storage uh, yes. that you're talking about here? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, well, I, I thought one of the advantages of, of um, space solar power was, I mean, we, we beamed directly into the grid and we didn't, didn't have to worry about battery storage. So uh, can you um, provide some more detail on what that is? Absolutely. Um, so I will tell you that if you look at that white paper and you look at the orbits selected, uh, Vertisolus is the only one that's not in geo or geo geosynchronous or geostationary. Those are two slightly different orbits, but effectively the same. Um, we've chosen a lower orbit, Molnia, which is a 12-hour ground synchronous orbit. So if you want to have something fixed on the ground and, and have line of sight on it, 
regularly, you're going to take the time it takes the Earth to rotate, which is a little bit shy of 24 hours, and then divide by an integer. So geostationary is easy. Divide by one. You can divide by two, three, four, five, six, and still have an orbit that uh, basically passes over the same spot on the ground every orbit. So Molnia is great. Is that uh, it? Delta V is about half of what it takes to go from Leo to Geo, um, and every single uh, you know heavy lift launch vehicle that can get to geostationary transfer orbit, the delta V is exactly the same to, to Molnia. And the key thing about Molnia is the highly elliptical orbit. So uh, it's uh, apogee, the peak of its orbit is about 35,000 kilometers. It's exactly the same as geostationary. Um, in fact. If you're going to get to geostationary, you need to do a highly elliptical orbit and circulate it uh, when you're um, out of your apogee, such that you stay at that 35,000 kilometers all the time. But the the Molnia has a, a perigee, a, a minimum orbit of about 800 kilometers of altitude. And because it's highly elliptical, uh, you can go to our website and see an animation or go to our YouTube channel and look at it. They spend about 11 and a half hours of every 12 uh, above uh, in line of sight of ground station. So the way we take care of the intermittency in that regard is because every 12 hours it's on opposite sides of the planet, actually, because the period of the day versus the period of the orbit. So the solution set actually serves one customer on one side of the planet and another customer on the other side of the planet sequentially. So in order to solve that, you have to put a constellation up. So you're going to put up another array that's uh, a few hours out, if you have a, a constellation of two, you're going to have a, a gap of about a half an hour every 12 hours. And if you have a constellation of three, you have no gaps whatsoever. And we actually plan a constellation of about 16 with eight in the northern hemisphere and eight in the southern. For the initial deployment, and to be fair, um, you know, all these economics assume the end power plant, however many you've built. We actually include um, quadruply redundant battery um, in our cost model. Uh, just to cover the worst of the worst and keep that battery in there even after the cancellation is deployed to be conservative from a cost perspective. So customers don't come in and say, hey, wait a minute, you told me my power plant was going to you know, be able to generate energy at $35 a megawatt hour. Um, and then uh, we say, no, well, we have the battery and it's actually you know 40 We actually include the battery to say, hey, worst case, you're going to pay 35 And if we get the constellation up and you're in the right spot on the ground, you don't need that battery. So that's really why the battery is there is to say, hey, look, um, until the constellation is big enough and it's got redundant coverage, let's be conservative and let's conclude uh, battery energy storage just in case there is a, a, a ground track for the, the orbit that passes near enough to your ground station. So that's just a, a way to say, look, let's under-promise, over-deliver. Okay. Um, uh, thanks for that. Um so at this launch or this demonstration coming up in 2027, um, <clears throat> and it's a, a smaller um, demonstrator um, experiment, right? So um, are you going to – you're going to assemble um, your, your um, solar power satellite with um, uh, robotic – uh, spacecraft, right? That that take the elements and uh, out of the launch vehicle, and then um, take them and assemble them. Um, yep. How does how does that work? And um, if 
shouldn't shouldn't there be like an interim experiment first to demonstrate that technology, or are are you just going to do it all at once? Uh, good question, John. I would argue that every single technology demonstration um, should be incremental. You should choose to do something simple first and then do more complex stuff later. So there's a whole um, subset of uh, in-space work that's called IBAM, in-space assembly and manufacture. It's primarily robotics, but it also includes the manufacturing part, which is actually taking raw materials and producing finished components. And it's a large part of uh, a lot of these uh, Either exploration missions or even commercial missions, uh, you know, in the cislunar space. So if you want to build uh, a large structure in space, uh, what complexity should you build first? Um, we would argue that something, the complexity of the ISS is probably not the first thing you want to do robotically, but something that large has already been built and it's been up there for quite a while. In fact, it's getting pretty close to being decommissioned. So that last step, doing the on-orbit assembly, is actually a um, burn down risk, right? We're doing a pretty small power plant. Um, we're planning something in the neighborhood of 100 kilowatts transmitted, which is about 100 satellites, where we plan 100,000 to 200,000 as a minimum commercial system. So in our minds, that is an incremental step. And uh, there's no paying customer, so you know there's little risk that they aren't going to get what they paid for. So you can judge for yourself on whether or not that is a, uh, a fair milestone to do. Uh, but in our minds, that is a, uh, a demonstration that will that will happen. In fact, 2027 is going to be several years after uh, some of the first on-orbit um, robotic assembly uh, demo missions. There's one that's due this calendar year, I believe, that's flying um, to do something similar. So uh, we won't be the first to do on-orbit robotic assembly, but certainly we won't be the last. Okay, and and um, your your system also has a co-orbiting modular gossamer mirror adjacent to each array, right? So, so you got to assemble that mirror in addition to your solar power satellite. Well, we would just make a little bit of definition of terms. Um, we our satellite's about a meter and a half across, one point six meters. So that is the satellite. So we make arrays of satellites. And the, the mirror, the redirect mirror, that allows us to um, operate uh, without uh, having to worry about um, the cosine losses is what the, the term you might hear about. And we haven't talked much about the mirror, but, yes, there is a, a mirror, which is um, a very small mass compared to the satellite. But, uh, yes, we will be assembling a mirror, a redirect mirror, which is actually probably going to be a thin layer of mylar um, stretched between some uh, – some stressing elements, but yes, there will be a mirror as well. Okay. Um, I, I keep getting disconnected from my um, my uh, um, AirPods, so um, pardon me. I, I keep going in and out. Um, uh, let's see. What was my last question? You can't, can't, you, can't you, your, you can't blame your AirPods on PG&E. <laughs> no, <laughs> I, I think they're charged. But anyway, um, you, you use a terminology I hadn't seen before in the description. You call it a uh, a Lucidus hypermodular architecture. Lucidus, what is that? Uh, Lucidus is Latin. Um, it's a name. Um, 
lucid is uh, a word that you might know in English. Uh, lucidus is the, is the root. Um, it means clarity. Ah, okay. All right. Well, thanks for that. And, uh, well, um, uh, thanks for coming on. And uh, I, I wish you much luck, and, and uh, I hope it works out for you. And I'll let someone else call in. Thank you, John. appreciate it very much. Bye-bye. Uh, listeners, you can give us a call, uh, with or without AirPods, 866-687-7223. And you can also continue to send in email to drspace at thespaceshow.com. And uh, our phone line is available. Um, I have a question from Linda in Seattle. And Linda said, I'm curious if the NASA report has crippled the ability for companies such as yourself to raise money in the commercial world. Who wants to be an investor in a business that the government seems to prove has no economic justification? Is that report helping or hurting or neutral so far? Go ahead, Ed. Uh, okay, well, I'll do my leap at it. But good news, good press, bad press, it's all good press. I, I think one of the upsides is the report is focusing a lot more attention on it. Um, and, and actually, the report's interesting because it's kind of a Rorschach test. The, the executive summary says, hey, it's not going to be successful. We're not going to make any impact before 2050. For those that actually read into it more deeply, it pretty much says that if we just make the right assumptions and we make the right design decisions, even with the NASA study, it's going to be competitive. It will be the cleanest and the um, cheap, one of the cheapest sources of providing power on the ground. And I think that's the important piece. The, the folks that are looking at it in North America are different from the folks that are looking at it in Europe. Europe's got other funded efforts that are taking a look at space-based solar. There's different economics that drive it in Europe than there are in the U.S. So, you know, we right now just simply say it's a data point that's coming out there. There's Fraser Nash studies that are saying this is a viable. Uh, Roland Berger has said it's viable. Oliver Wyman is saying it's viable. ESA has been sponsoring studies, and the Space Energy Initiative in the U.K. has. So this is one data point, and, you know, once again, it's getting people to talk about it. And we hope that over time it's like, you know, we can see that what's in the NASA report, it's very clear the assumptions they've made versus what the private enterprise is saying can be done. And we hope, just like reusable launch vehicles were initially considered to be something that couldn't be done, space-based solar power is something that, you know, we're going to be able to prove that it is a viable way to produce power and will be the cleanest and cheapest way to make that happen. Are you running into challenges or obstacles from the uh, governmental regulatory environment or so far that's pretty benevolent? Uh, the the regulatory environment is actually pretty uh, clear on this one. It's the, for broadcasting and a radio frequency, uh, we've been working with the FCC for a long time. We have an experimental broadcast license. Uh, or, you know, we've, uh, our friend at Caltech, who flew a solar power plant demonstrator over the last year, they completed that in January. They had the first commercial space-based solar power broadcast license, and so they kind of paved the way for us to go after doing the same thing, and we're quite a ways along. Um, the regulatory challenges have been pretty easy uh, in the grand scheme of things. And to follow up on the NASA paper, I don't know how many reads they've got on their paper, but our summary 
across uh, 1,600, I'm sorry, 1,169 leads as of at the very moment. So people are reading our, our summary as well. So to, date, to Ed's point, um, the NASA summary of uh, the technology and ours uh, are getting not just one or two readers, but you know, substantial number of people are looking at it and thinking about it. Why do you think we, uh, our government, um, and, and our policymakers see this so differently than Europeans? Is it because of lobbying? Is it because of our fossil fuel reserves and fossil fuel industry? Uh, why, why has space solar power always dragged at the federal level? Okay. I mean, if you take a look at the history we've got in the U.S., in 1980, coming out of the high heyday of the Apollo program, effectively about $80 million was spent to take a look at what could be done to power the U.S. off space-based solar. And quite frankly, in 1980, we didn't have what it would take to make that happen. But there, from the, the stories we hear, there were careers that were destroyed over that entire effort. You know, the, the things that they came up with where they were going to put 300 gigawatts in orbit, they were going to develop reusable launch vehicles, space tugs, low-Earth orbit satellites, um, low-Earth orbit um, space stations, geospace stations, and the system would have had, I believe, uh, if it was north of uh, hundreds of people, would have had to have been in space constantly keeping this thing running. The, the National Research Council pretty much was asked to come in as a third party and look at it and say, will this work? And they said, no, it's not ready. You need about another 40 years for some of these technologies to evolve. And in that intervening time, what we've got is we have robotics that work in space. We have got launch costs have dropped. We have the reusable launchers that were needed. And, you know, the electronics themselves have become rock solid compared to what they were looking to use in 1980. So, you know, this is where we think we're at now. And the, the opinions, I think, are just driving like any other organization that has a legacy of doing something a particular way, the lessons they've learned they're going to tend to keep working in that direction. I mean, take a look at EVs. Where EVs, I, I worked on EVs within GM. It was a dedicated team that wanted to make it happen. But the high-level engineering uh, the executives didn't see a path to make that into a viable product. So the lead that was had there was left, let go. You know, it took an upstart like Tesla to come in and figure a way to claw its way into profitability and into high-volume production. You know, so it's very, very hard for an organization that's optimized to do one job to figure out how to change itself and go through the painful things that need to happen. And I think the NASA report reflects that. Um, John, were you going to say something about that too? Um, I was going to mirror what Ed had said. Uh, we've we've got this legacy um, in the in the federal government. I mean, there are people like Dennis Bushnell who were at NASA for forty some years. Um, and there are people who were there uh, with NASA in 1980 when that, that happened. And we talked to people in other government agencies who also happened to be at NASA at that time frame. So we have this legacy of um, that 1980 NASA report. So the, the teams in the EU and the UK, they don't have that uh, uh, I don't know, albatross hanging around their neck. So they're open to the concept, and that's really – it's just a difference in perception. And now we're a U.S. company, and we don't have to ask uh, the government to fund this. Uh, as a commercial enterprise, you can, you know, see capital elsewhere. Um, so, you know, we're not constrained in, in that regard. So, if we were completely, uh, you know, funded by 
uh, you know, federal agencies, like a lot of aerospace primes, um, yeah, this wouldn't happen. Uh, you have another email. Uh, ben is in Denver, Colorado, and he says this is for either of you. For the past couple of days, we've been hearing news stories, whether they're real or bogus, I can't tell you, though I think they're bogus, about Russia having new space-based weapons ranging from nuclear bombs to who knows what else. What's the security like if a rogue nation or maybe another space power does decide to use space-based or terrestrial-based weapons to take out the grid, except this time the grid is up in space, can the mylar be destroyed? Can Is any of this system vulnerable in national security sense? How do you protect it? And, uh, and I uh, I prefer you to talk about the, uh, the cybersecurity part, but I, I have some other bad news for the listener when it's done. Okay. I, I mean, I, the, the first thing I'll say is, like, if you take a look at it, we have – all kinds of weapons on the oceans in the air today, and we don't worry about commercial airliners, oil tankers, and all these other um, commerce that go through international areas being affected by the existence of the weapons. Space is the same thing. There's thousands of satellites up there today. They would all be subject to the same things that we're looking at. So, you know, I, I know it makes very good headlines to look at some of that stuff and worry about it, but the practical thing is, you know, we do have things in place that keep these sort of threats managed through treaties and everything else. But the second piece is our systems are inherently very robust. You know, when you look at a structure that's going to be hundreds or thousands of kilometers across, all the parts in it are operating massively in parallel. So if you do manage to take out some of it, it with a kinetic kill or something like that, the system's still going to be able to keep working at a degraded level of performance. We don't think that's going to be something we have to worry about in the near term. We think there's other things that will come along that will make it, you know, things that we can say these are good assets and et cetera. But the, the existing framework that we have around international commerce is going to extend into space, and it should not be a realistic issue in normal times. Um, okay. Um, what about um, maintenance? One of the things I hear people talk about is uh, meteorites damaging the the mylar or something of that nature, what what kind of damage would it take to uh, require repairs? Because, you know, there's tiny little things floating around and something that big is likely going to get hit. So does it matter if it gets hit and or how much of it can take hits before you have to do some maintenance or repairs? I can take that one. Go ahead, John. So, so – we, we we haven't done much describing around what we're doing. I, I noticed John Jossie did read our report in pretty some in pretty good detail. And we say that we're building something that's hypermodular, right? We've got um, hundreds of thousands to millions of devices operating together as a system. Um, it's much like uh, the the cell phone network globally. We have lots of uh, devices that are interoperative with each other and able to to function. And any you know small says you know a segment of that can fail, and it's so works fine, just the same way the Internet does. So, as Ed was saying, it's a very robust system. There, each satellite we're flying is autonomous. It's, uh, it's got its own uh, calculation on board. It's got its own power management. It's not reliant on its neighbors for any of those things, just a structural connection. So, um, the good news is that space is still pretty empty. Uh, 
um, especially the, the the debris belt uh, that you uh, you might know about. Um, it's pretty low. It's below 2,000 kilometers, the vast majority of debris, and then it gets a little denser as you get closer to the atmosphere. But um, interestingly, on the debris front, uh, the current solar sunspot cycle, it's an 11-year cycle, but um, the more sunspots you have, the more solar wind uh, we have, and that um, inflates the atmosphere, interestingly, and it heats it up, and there's been a, a, a rain of, uh, of debris and satellites included that have been operating too close to the, the upper parts of the atmosphere because of the, the solar cycle that we're having right now. So we're close to the peak. So the, the peak of the peak should be the next year or two. But um, the altitude that we're operating at, almost no debris. Um, even if we were to be hit, uh, it, it's, uh, you know, we've decided something that uh, ages gracefully. But the key thing you think about, um, and the reason you do maintenance, is that you have a very valuable asset, and then if a, a five-cent part fails, you have to go out and repair it. Well, we're taking a slightly different approach. Um, all of our satellites are built and tested and qualified on the ground. They're put in racks, and they're put in spacecraft and launched. So when it comes to maintenance, each of these are active electronic devices. they got smarts. They've got sensors on them. And they're reporting back to the ground or the control station, wherever it might be on the ground or in orbit, that, hey, uh, I'm operating at 90% capacity or 100% or 0% and I'm dead. Um, so come do something. And in our case, each of these arrays that we're putting in orbit is um, is a software-definable satellite, right? So if you have 20 million uh, satellites on an array, that's way more than any one ground station can absorb power-wise. So we actually use software to uh, subdivide that array into smaller arrays and transmit that energy to wherever the customers are. So if you want to replace a satellite, which only costs a few hundred dollars, it's less than the cost of a laptop, every time we send up more uh, satellites to expand the array, we'll send up a fraction, usually about 1% of the design for maintenance. So you'll use the same robot that we're using to put the array together. You'll remove a damaged or, or dead one and replace it with a new one. And then, interestingly, uh, the, we already are talking to people who want salvage right to those systems that are already in orbit. So um, it could go to a salvage company. It could be brought back on the on the launch vehicle, uh, back to the factory, so we can look at it and repair it or understand why it failed. But the, the number of systems that we can lose uh, is quite high before we see noticeable degradation in performance. But it's inten- intentionally very robust. Um, so the maintenance involves removing and replacing uh, systems that are that have gone down. But ultimately, the design life of these components is very long, 30 to 40 years minimum, uh, with opportunities to last much longer. Um, and I also tell the earlier caller who is worried about attack in space, I will tell you that um, it is hard to find things in space, even things as big as we're talking about. You might know that the Department of Defense operates a, a space plane called the X-37, which is a mini space shuttle. It launched a few months ago, and no one knew where it went. Um, and it took an amateur astronomer um, watching the same part of the sky to find it, and it took six months. Um, so uh, if you're going to uh, try to go after a uh, a satellite or something in space, you have to find it first. Uh, and compared to finding something on the ground, uh, it's a lot harder, um, especially when you're at a much higher orbit. There's only so many devices that are able to get to that high orbit, and that comes back around with launch vehicles. So uh, launch vehicles, as you might know, are all derived from ICBMs. 
And uh, anything that is able to achieve orbit can do point-to-point in about 30 minutes or less. So uh, if you think things in orbit are vulnerable, um, the only things we have is the agreement not to to harm each other and, you know, announcing broadly to everyone that these are commercial flights. They're going to go in this direction. They're going to launch in this direction, and they're going to go in these orbits. If anyone starts doing something else, uh, the powers that be will be aware of that and uh, probably will not uh, play nice with each other. So it's a, it's a gentleman's agreement for all of us to uh, to use uh, this commercial, you know, this space launch capability uh, responsibly. Right. Um, given the the progress that you guys are making in the in the visibility. Um, I've gotten two emails so far from different parts of the country. One was Chicago, one was the Bay Area. Uh, and they wanted to know if um, you're thinking down the road of a SPAC or some kind of a public uh, presence for people being able to invest in your company at, at this early stage. Is that a part of your game plan or not yet or not ever or you not want to talk about it? Uh, I will tell you that uh, we are a venture-backed startup. Um, to date, uh, we've been uh, taking small checks from angels primarily, and then uh, we'll uh, be taking larger checks from a bigger investment firm. But um, all of those investors want an exit eventually, and uh, there is a uh, you know, SPAC is one option, but the SPAC uh, – Boom! That was a couple of years ago. All uh, most of those businesses crashed and burned because they didn't have a, a good business model. But the exit that we're primarily looking at is uh, an IPO in the early 30s, so maybe mid 2030s, depending on how things go. So um, that's how investors will get their money back and, and hopefully uh, make a profit. Um, that's how most uh, tech startups are are financed. Uh, it'd be great if we were able to get um, you know big money government contracts, but as we described earlier, it's a little challenging here in the U.S. to do so. Um, but if anyone is interested and has a big check they want to write to us, uh, you can go to our um, our website, and uh, there's, a, there's a contact form. It's info at vertisols.space. The email will eventually make its way to me, and we can have a conversation. So uh, smaller checks are possible, uh, but only for a very limited time. So if you're interested, please give me a call. Um. Okay, listeners, if, if you're interested, uh, uh, you, you can reach them. And uh, another question, and I think you've kind of answered it, uh, but um, this is going to be more specific. Uh, this is Beth in Chicago, and she says, uh, is everything that you're planning to do in space going to be robotically created, manufactured, and finalized? Or will be, there be any room for humans doing anything in space via EVAs or anything similar to what they do when they have to go fix something on the space station? Will everything be robotic? With any luck. With yeah, the, 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 well, the, 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 the game plan is to start with probably more like telerobotics. We actually have men in the loop that are making sure things are done properly. But as time progresses, the goal is to get to fully automated assembly. You can think of it like a lights-out factory that's going to be assembling parts that are brought up from the ground and putting them into the arrays. You know, we will be doing manufacture on the ground of the satellite tiles that will be sent up, 
and when they go up, it will be eventually a fully automated assembly process. Um, is any part of uh, the technology you need lagging behind what you need to do a successful demo? I guess what I'm I'm asking at if if we ask you for the TRL of the different components that you need to bring this business to commercial status and have customers, are there any components with such a low TRL they're going to have to play a lot of catch-up? Ed, that's you, but you can tell them the, your TRL assessments. Okay. Um, so... You know, when I look at it right now, it's like in-space assembly, you know, is going to be going through the TRL progression very quickly in the next couple of years. That's one that is enabling technology that will be necessary for us. Um, we don't see that as having anything that fundamentally is going to prevent it from happening. There are some areas with um, electronics that we don't see these being TRL issues, but just primarily development of the supplier base to have parts that have performance specs that are needed. And those are all on our development plans. You know, the largest issue is probably simply going to be the um, uh, getting the, the first demonstrator actually to the point that, you know, we got conclusively through the regulations, we've gotten through the deployment, we've gotten through the setup. Technically, even the NASA report says there's no engineering reason this can't be done. They do say, they simply say there's things that need to be improved on. And we have the same assessment. And, and I don't know if you guys caught it, but um, TRL is a very interesting topic. Um, and we would argue that, that the system going from TRL 4 to 9 um, covers a lot of things that uh, liquid-propelled rockets have to deal with and space stations, what have you. Um, your cell phone uh, sitting in your pocket will operate in space if it had a, uh, a solar cell on it. And the difference between what's uh, in production and operating in space is that it has never operated in a space environment, but it will operate just fine in a space environment. So the difference between the electronic device that we built on the ground and operating in space, TRL 4 to 9 is the same thing. It's really no different. So, yeah, I mean, and that's a great point, John. I, that's a great point to bring up. It's like a lot of the TRL stuff did come out of the challenges with fluids and structures under high loads, getting them into orbit and getting them to work properly once in orbit. Electronics is a completely different matter. And some of this, of course, is, is not what you're specifically working on, so you're dependent upon other industries in the supply chain, correct? I would argue that the supply chain is already there um, as far as technical capability, right? And some of it is uh, going to be stressed if these uh, space-based solar power systems are, are viable. Uh, because, um, you know, you, you might think that uh, the space industry is huge and it's enormous. It's not. It's quite small compared to other industries. Um, I don't know if you guys know how many cell phones are manufactured globally um, per year, but it's roughly equivalent to the number of people we have. So I don't know who gets a new cell phone every year, but I don't. But if you start uh, producing, uh, you know, consumer electronic devices and put them in orbit, uh, our, our, our plan specifically, uh, uh, in the first eight years of production, I think we plan to put about 30, 32 gigawatts in orbit. The tonnage in orbit from those first eight years would outstrip the whole history of human spaceflight. 
Um, and that's just a, a we call it a, a ramp or a singularity or what have you, and it's already happening. I mean, SpaceX is, uh, you know, planned to do space launch. They figured that that market size was between three and four billion. So how much do you think they made in space launch last year? Uh, I don't, uh, I don't uh, know. Do you know? It was just about 2.8 billion. And, um, they're, they look like they're going to make about 10 billion or to 12 billion on Starlink uh, next year. So they are already way more a communication company than they are a space launch company. And that, um, you know, it's all relative to, you know, how is the technology accessible to have as many people as possible, right? So Starlink is accessible to a lot more people than, um, space launch. And, this is the chicken and egg problem that most people don't realize what low-cost commercial space launch can do for you. You just have to figure out a business case that allows you to, to operate in space. So we think there's a huge um, growth opportunity in the you know system or infrastructure and even actually having a system or economy, but you have to have the infrastructure up there first, and we think power is the step one, and we call it step one of our master plan, but who knows whether we'll be able to get past step one. But there are, certainly there are lots of other opportunities when that happens. So... Yeah, that's a huge step function in, in uh, you know, the operation, you know, off, off Earth if, if the infrastructure is there. Um, another email. Uh, Wanda is in Miami, but first of all, listeners, there's still time, roughly 15 more minutes left in our program today, and we'd love it if you would pick up the phone. You hear me do this on every space show. John's probably heard me do it five million times already. one eight six 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 eight seven seven two two three. We much prefer talking with you rather than email, but if email is your thing, Dr. Space at the com. and Wanda must have email as her thing. She is in Miami, and she says, have either of you made the trip to D.C. to go lobby or present space solar power to key members of Congress? If you have done so, what was the reaction and more important, what was their knowledge level about space solar power before you talked with the person? So let me just give Wanda some context. Uh, we started this business uh, right before COVID. Okay. So good news, bad news around COVID is that uh, video conferencing um, has become a thing. And the interesting thing about uh, that is that we can have many, many meetings uh, with lots of different members of uh, the legislative and the um, executive branch, and we have. Um, we have a full-time dedicated government affairs guy. Uh, his name is David Berger, and he was the mayor of Lima, Ohio, for 32 years, if you ever want to look him up. But um, we have briefed, I think, 200 members of the different uh, federal agencies that would be involved, um, portions of the White House and the administration, and uh, members of staff of different um, members of the committees, and other than the NASA people, who um, we've gone all the way up to the administrator, uh, not the current administrator, but the, the prior one. And other than NASA, almost no one's heard of it as a technology, which <laughs> not 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 shocking. Uh, and really, our goal when we go uh, inside the Beltway and talk to these agencies is saying, look, uh, you guys should be ready. This technology is coming. It's not just us. Um, the regula- regulatory environment should be ready. And um, at least the federal agencies in, in general, uh, the FCC and the Department of Commerce in particular, are very 
um, friendly to us, and they've been very keen to see this happen. Um, but, yeah, inside uh, the, the legislative branch, our goal has been, hey, look, um, we would love it if uh, the, the federal definition of space solar power um, existed. Because if you look at the, the definition of renewable energy, you have solar, a single word, and then there's, like, I think seven different de- definitions for ocean power and other forms. So we just asked for an appropriations bill to add um, terrestrial and space solar is the description of, of solar power. But um, you might know uh, Congressman Mullen uh, from Jersey City, California, um, put together uh, um, an order in November and again in January to tell NASA and DOE to work together uh, on this sort of technology. But, um, so it has been spoken in the halls of Congress, but um, very few people are aware of it or even aware that there are businesses working in this vertical. So uh, we're doing our best to communicate. Uh, if you are interested and you want to point your congressman, we have a very extensive blog that talks about energy issues and technology issues and space solar power issues and launch issues. So to educate yourself, uh, I don't know how many entries we have, but it's probably 40 or 50 uh, to read, and they're all very informative. Dr. Tate um, does a lot of great research uh, for educating uh, people about different elements of, of the energy economy and, and uh, the potential for space solar. You have another phone call. Um, good afternoon. Good, excuse me. Good morning, caller. Welcome to the program. Who are you? Where are you, please? Uh, hey guys, it's John in Fremont again. Doesn't seem like anybody else is calling in, so um, I'm out walking the dog now. I thought I'd call back and ask about ground uh, rectennas. And uh, I know I, I, I think you guys are are working with uh, you know. Um, various uh, uh, utilities to establish um, uh, connections to the grid. Um, will you will you be outsourcing the rectennas? Are you going? Are you guys going to uh, build the rectennas as well? So, John, the plan is for us to manufacture carbonate, and the rectennas are a large part of that. Uh, our, our rectennas look a lot like solar farms. In fact, the form factor and interfaces and everything look exactly like a large format utility scale solar, farm, uh, solar panel. So anyone that can build a solar farm can build a, a, a space solar farm on the ground. So yeah, our primary products will be the components to manufacture power plants. Now the construction, um, when you're building these devices is almost never the, uh, the, the component manufacturer. So that's the case for, you know, power plants globally, but um, that's certainly going to be the case for us. Okay. And uh, so I, I, I would imagine that these are going to be all over the place because you don't want to – you want to um, eliminate the problem of having to, you know, um, transmit the power uh, uh, because of all the losses uh, in transmission lines. So you want rectennas where the power is needed, right? So, are these are going to be all over the U.S. Uh, or wherever, with any luck. Okay. Yeah, I mean, one of the things to think of is we've already dedicated a lot of land already to wind farms and solar farms, and those things do have finite lifetimes. So, as those roll out of their useful life, that land would be available, plus the infrastructure connections, the right of ways, etc., to convert from one technology to another. 
and we can fit our footprint into many of those farms right now. So that would be part of the, the overall thing is you don't need to build new infrastructure. You use what's already there during the repowering phase. Um, so okay. For, for those, of, those of you who don't know about um, the global energy generation uh, industry, specifically uh, electricity, there's about 40,000 power plants globally. Um, and our two-kilometer antenna farm fits in the vast majority of them um, inside their fence lines. So it's at point around the repowering phase, there's an awful lot of uh, power plants that uh, you could you could level and replace with a space solar power plant and deliver lower cost to end users. So these um, existing facilities would be um, phased out? If you wanted to. I mean, we're not uh, – certainly when we talk about construction, we talk about greenfield construction, which there's never been, you know, a construction project there, and then brownfield, which is you know, an existing uh, construction site that's been repurposed for something else. So um, if you're operating an energy utility and you're interested in upgrading, what do you do when your, you know, power plant ends its life, right? So you can either let, let it go follow, which happens quite frequently, or you demolish it and put something new in. Okay. Great. Well, um, that's it for me again, David. I guess um, that's all I've got. Thanks. Thank you, John. Uh, listeners, if you want to call, I know this is Friday and you listen at work. Um, you've got a couple of minutes, 866 and you've got a couple of minutes left to send in an email, drspace at thespaceshow.com. George says, uh, by the way, he's from Oklahoma City, and he says, it seems to me you'd have a better bet with your resources to have a media educational program rather than a program to go after members of Congress. The reason people don't know very much about it is because the media doesn't know anything about it and doesn't write about it, and when it does write about it, it writes the particular point of view from the government or whoever is giving them the article. Have you thought about a media education plan? Um, I, don't think, I don't know that we need to. Um, certainly, uh, if you read Space News or Ars Technica, um, you know, they're more technology-focused uh, media outlets. Uh, Eric Berger at Ars Technica and Jeff Faust at Space News, they've written very good articles uh, on the topic of um, space solar. Um, but, to, you know, to your point, um, what is the media going to do with that information, right? It's, uh, hey, what, uh, you know, do you, uh, are you, are you a fan of fusion, for example? Because there's all sorts of press on fusion and people get excited about it. And it's not available yet. Same thing with space solar. So, um, what, what is the outcome of uh, this education program? Um, certainly, uh, we think it should be part of the discussion, but, uh, you have this catch-22 problem where it doesn't exist yet and people don't know that it will exist. And therefore, what, uh, <laughs> what are you, are you, you're telling them about a technology that they don't know that it's going to happen or not. So the proof is in the pudding. I guess the, our expectation is the education will ramp up, uh, once you have a, uh, operational system in orbit of this pilot plan that we're planning for three years from now. You mentioned briefly fusion. We haven't talked about it, but the, uh, there's incredible press on the entrepreneurial fusion programs, not necessarily the big government tokamak programs. 
uh, that fusion is just around the corner? Is it going to be competitive with what you're doing? Will it bounce out uh, space solar power in favor of fusion? Will it be just another source of energy? How, how do you see fusion, and is it uh, a competition to be concerned about? Um, Ed and I are both very opinionated. Um, I'm going to answer this one real quick. Uh, no one knows if fusion is going to work yet. It might. And no one, no one knows economics yet. So it would be pure speculation on my part uh, because no one has ever built one that works and it's commercial. So I will tell you that uh, looking at um, the proliferation of technologies, the simpler it is, the faster it scales. Uh, nuclear fission is an example because I have a I have a background in that area. It's hard to scale that technology because it's very lots of components that you have to manufacture, a uh, very specialized knowledge to do so. I would argue fusion is in the same boat. Um, we no one's built it yet, so no one knows how it's going to you know, play out commercially. So uh, I wish them all the best. It would be great to have fusion available, but um, I suspect it's a, a complex technology. If you haven't made it work yet, and they've been trying for a long, long time. Uh, it's probably not going to be cheap and easy to deploy. Yeah, and there's three phases for all these technologies. The first one is, do the physics support what you can do? Do you understand the physics enough to move to the next step, which is engineering? Once you get into engineering, can you build the parts to last long enough, to have the high, high enough yield to make the materials obtainable and all the other pieces? And then finally, can you optimize it to become economic? Physics is still at that very first step where, I'm sorry, fusion is still at that very first step where the physics has got to be proved out. You know, and there's claims that we're a couple of years off, and, you know, that's the key one is getting to the point that they're actually able to really hit break-even with something that can be built, and then it kicks off the engineering phase. And, and that's still a big unknown as to how long that will take. Um, gents, we're pretty close to the end of 90 minutes. Do you have any concluding comments, anything we have forgotten to talk about that we should talk about? Yeah, I'll jump in. I'll say one thing, which is, you know, in all the analysis and things that we've been looking at as we've gone through this, it's like one thing I'd like to share with people is that space-based solar, people think of solar typically as not an energy-dense solution. We can actually produce space-based solar that the power, the energy delivered per kilogram of space-based solar plant that's built is comparable to pulling uranium out of the ground. I mean, just let that settle in for a minute. This is something we can build today. And we can demonstrate on the ground that these energy densities will be uh, on par with uranium pulled out of the ground. We see the progression being that, you know, once this works, and this is what the um, studies have shown since the 1980s, is once the first capital barrier to making it work goes past, it will be wildly successful. It will be something that is able to self-fund, grow and scale to power the world at a civilizational level. And that's one of the reasons that we're working on this today is we see this as a scalable solution to energy globally to drive prosperity. And we look forward to making that happen. Well, um, I hope you do make it happen. So do uh, a lot of other people. Uh, space solar power has been around since before the space show started in 2001. But we were on board initially, and so I, so was I with my uh, PhD dissertation, actually DBA dissertation, to be transparent, um, and it was around 20 years before that, or 30 years before that. So, uh, I, I hope we're nearing the point where uh, it 
it, it's demonstrated and does become operational. And uh, I hope you guys uh, are at the top of the pack when that happens. John, you mentioned there's another company. Who else is, is trying to do this, and how do they differ from you? Um, so there's one in the U.K. called Space Solar Limited. Um, I won't ding their name because it's hard to get uh, a descriptive name out there, but they're a spinoff of U.K. government. Um, and there are a few startups here in the U.S. that really are not um, they're operating itself that seem to be in this vertical, but um, that's it. And there are really no others. Um, um, so anyway, you can you can read about uh, the, the space solar system. They have a, a design that's called Cassiopeia, which is a geostationary solution. Uh, you can read our report and learn all about it. But uh, it's um, it's a technology uh, technology that um, solves certain problems. But uh, it's, it also has space mirrors, by the way, not not just us. And uh, it uses um, a very unique architecture that allows them to operate. In, in geo and not have to rotate the face of sun all the time. So I'll, I'll, I'll leave it at that. Okay. Uh, guys, I wish you uh, the best of luck, and, and uh, I look forward to the next time we bring you on board the space show for updates and to, to learn what's happening. And uh, uh, we hope you are able to keep moving forward and making great progress. And if anything changes, let us know, and and we'll bring you back faster than what normally we would probably do so. So um, right. I wish you all the best. And, Ed, it's great to meet you. I hope that uh, we can have you back and talking about this and other forms of technology on future space show programs. Thanks for having me on, David. Bye-bye. Okay. Uh, that's it for today, listeners. So uh, back on Sunday about commercial space habitats, you can read about it on the, on the uh, newsletter with two guests, and then uh, our normal space show programming because we're not leaving until the end of March. We'll be gone again. So everybody have a great weekend. Keep it safe. Keep it happy. Always, always, always look up, as we like to say. And uh, goodbye from John, Ed, The Space Show, David. And uh, everybody really, truly have a great weekend. Uh, Guys, thank you once again. Uh, Enjoy the weekend, too. Bye, everybody, from The Space Show. Bye.